time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. Let me ask you a quick question. How many times in the last couple of days have you felt fear? I'm not talking about maybe even the really huge, terrifying fears, but even those little fears. You know, somebody cuts in front of you in traffic or you worry about whether you mailed something out or you worry about your kids at school or wherever they are. How many times in the last couple of days have you felt some fear? I recently read an interesting article about the rock climber Alex Honnold. And Alex Honnold has this idea where he can climb anything without a rope. Now, having done some rock climbing in my life, I can tell you I am not willing to go on even a rock wall without some serious gear to hold me in and to keep me from falling because I recognize with my skill level, it's only a matter of time. Here's the interesting thing. This guy has free solo climbed the Half Dome in Yosemite Valley without a safety rope. He's done many other climbs across Niagara Falls and lots of other places just to kind of test his skills without any protection. So they finally decided that they were going to test him and see what this skill piece is for him. And so they put him in an fMRI, which is basically an MRI machine that can see him as he's moving around. And what they detected is his fear circuitry um, is offline, whether you call it dysfunctional or just not working. This guy doesn't feel fear like you and I do. So when he is up there climbing without anything holding him on, his brain is not saying you're about to die. His brain is saying you're good. Keep going. And so he takes risks that we wouldn't take. And probably because of that, probably because of his calmness, he's managed to keep on going. Now, Unfortunately, he also doesn't have fear telling him that's too much. And so sometimes fear plays both ways. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, fear happens in our brain. It's not just in our mind. It's also in our brain. And it starts in this very deep part of our brain called the amygdala. It's really two almond-sized clusters of neurons that are, are buried way, way deep down in your brain that have been there for millennia. And this information plays It processes all the information coming through all of these senses. It kind of as a high speed pattern to go through to decide if something is dangerous. And if it decides that something is a risk, it it very quickly calculates the risk factor and very quickly escalates your body to respond to it. It's constantly looking for these potential threats and it sets you up to respond to the danger All of this is done unconsciously, not just unconsciously, but almost it's below the place of verbality in your brain. This part of the brain is so primitive, it doesn't understand language and doesn't need to to do what it's doing because it's telling you to get out of the way. It's not saying the words get out of the way. It's getting your body to move. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where your body feels like it's it's got to move. There's something moving it. When I was a young man, uh, well, very young teenager, my father, pastor of a church, gave me the job of going to that church and walking through the church to make sure each night that it was all locked up and all the lights were off. I don't know if you've ever been in a big church, but big churches make lots of noises, as any building does. There are creaks and groans and pipes that pop and sounds that sound a whole lot more threatening when it's dark. 
I would start on one end. And the problem is these, these, uh, walls, the, all the hallways were not well done with, with the circuitry. So I might have to turn off the light on one end and walk all the way to the other end in the dark. Only to get to the other end to turn off another light and walk down another darkened hall. And, and I couldn't get them all in sync. And so I was constantly walking down dark halls to make sure that that light had been turned off. Dark halls at night through a dark building that was creaking and groaning. And what I remember is the feeling of my feet wanting to run. I remember so how clearly it was like I couldn't tell it not to. My feet were desperate to sprint through that building and get to the other side. That was because my amygdala, the part of the brain that's been called the reptilian brain, was feeling like I was at threat and was trying to get me out of the way of the threat. Notice how many animals respond on this little fear factor, this amygdala in them too, because they don't have words to say, get out, you got to get out. Maybe that's someone behind you, but there is something in there that's triggering that fear response. If it finds some danger, the amygdala instantly sends the impulse to the hypothalamus, which then creates this whole bodily cascade. Your heart races, your blood pressure goes up, your muscles begin to get ready, you begin to to sweat profusely to keep you cool in case you have to fight. And that's the nature of the fears. What did I do as I was walking down those darkened halls? Well, I would try to remind my feet they didn't have to run. I will admit a few times I kind of jogged on down to get to the other end, but that's when we have to decide what we're going to do with that part of our brain. That's a level of fear. Fear can be a life-saving response because if your body didn't warn you quickly, you might be in harm's way. In fact, our brain is extra sensitive to looking for those threats because our brain was developed at a point when the threat was a mortal threat. If you paused a minute to question what the shadow was, you might have been lunch that day, or at least your ancestors might have been lunch that day, and your genes would not be in the gene pool because your ancestors were eaten long ago when they underestimated the danger. So it was always better to overestimate the danger. It was always better to be looking for more threat than less threat, which means that our brains are set for fear. Now, there are some other people, not just Hanald, that don't have this brain factor. Some people have amygdalas that have been damaged. And so when people simply do not have fear, it is usually because there's a circuitry issue, a dysfunctional circuitry in their brain, which means that for the rest of us, we can almost say we all have fears. The rest of us who don't have some brain dysfunction have fears. That fear circuitry is wired into all of us and it is oversensitive. Not only that, but our fear doesn't just get triggered by those mortal threats of maybe, you know, something in the way or something coming at you or somebody coming at you or the imagined sound of somebody coming by you. Those are certainly true. I've had plenty of those in my life. There are times when I get a little uh, skittish about something. Just the other day, I was out paddling on the river near my house and I chose this day because I didn't have anything going on. The problem was when I woke up, it was foggy. And do you know the most foggy place in any location is right over the water. So as I was driving to the river, I was thinking, it's just going to be an interesting paddle. But I wanted to paddle bad enough that I decided to launch, even though I couldn't see very far in front of me. As I paddled out of the creek onto the river, the first thing I notice is all of the traffic that's on the river, all the commercial traffic. Every boater was sensible enough to stay home. It was me, 
the the commercial traffic that had no other option and a few other people who were out paddling their shells for a little um, little exercise that day. And so I began to move slowly up the river as I was paddling along. I was trying to be close enough to shore that I could kind of see where it was so I knew where I was, but far enough away that I didn't get stuck in the shallows. And it was quite an interesting adventure because I kept imagining what, what might be around me, how close the commercial traffic might come to me. And I kept reminding myself that I was shallow enough that they wouldn't be there. I kept reminding myself that I have never seen a snake come towards me in the time I've been paddling. So that's not likely to happen. And I was reminding myself that I actually could see a little further than I was giving credit. Constantly, I was trying to reassure my brain that was being hijacked by fear that it was okay. And it took half of the paddle for me to do that. When I turned around, the reason the other half of the paddle didn't need that is because the fog burned off. I could suddenly see clearly now. And so as I was coming back, the fear subsided, but only because I knew where I was and I could see everything around me. My brain was trying to warn me that something could be of danger. I call those protective fears. It's the same kind of fear that happens when I'm running down the path and I see a stick that looks like it might be a squiggly thing and could crawl. And I am careful to stop. Those are protective fears that we all have. We also have some bigger fears, some existential fears. And I always like to distinguish between the protective fears, which are usually startle points, things that startle us or scare us in the moment. Somebody jumps out and, and says, boo, or you see something in the path, or you're not sure what's behind that, or you're walking down a darkened uh, road and, and you can have those kind of those hypersensitive points where you're really watching for what might harm you or your loved ones. Those are protective fears. But then there are these existential fears. And these existential fears, I think there are three central existential fears. The first one is I won't have enough. The second one is, I won't be loved enough. And the third existential fear is, I won't be good enough. Not having enough, not being loved enough, not being good enough. If you think about it, that pretty much follows Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The base level of Maslow's hierarchy is that we need safety. We need our, our, our coverage, right? We need somewhere, somewhere to be safe and something to eat and something to drink that's having enough. The next one up is belonging. And belonging is about, will I be loved enough? Will people care for me? And we all have that throughout our lives. This is why we have such struggles through our teen years, particularly in trying to figure out who we're with, what the group is that's going to have an affinity for us. But we don't escape it ever. We just change how that piece falls into our life. My wife was at a conference a few years back and she was trying to find a table to eat at for lunch. Now, this was a group of social workers and therapists, people who should be, shall we say, self-aware. And as she walked around, she kept walking up to table. She didn't know anybody. And she'd say, hey, can I sit here? And they would block the seat and say, oh, this was taken. I've got somebody coming. I'm saving my seat. That's the same stuff we used to do in high school, right? I know because I was the one trying to find my, my place to sit down. We have lived with that all our lives and continue to, even as adults, we're afraid to be around those who might not love us as much as we want to be loved, right? And so that follows us throughout our lives. And then that final one, that, that place where we self-actualize, as uh, Maslow talked about it, self-actualization is, will I be good enough? Will I rise to a higher level for myself? Can I get to a place where I have excelled in life? We all have a need for those fears to, to be abated. And the problem is 
their natural fears, their natural existential fears. These are the fears that keep us up at night. These are the fears that we wake up in a cold sweat from. All of the fears that keep us up fall under those three fears in some way if it's not extended to some safety of somebody that we love. Here's the problem. Fear becomes an avoidance indicator for us. Think about that because this is where we we cross the path of these existential fears to tackle, to deal with, and our protective fears. If you have a protective fear, you probably need to avoid the situation that's putting you at risk. Now, you, you might just need to be careful about it, right? But there is some level of avoidance. I'm going to avoid that danger. I forced myself to walk down those dark hallways, but I was trying to avoid being hurt. That was what my feet were trying to do. If you're walking down a a dark alley and you want to get clear of it, that's the avoidance part of it. If you're running down a path and you see a snake on the side and you stop, that's the avoidance part that's keeping you safe. And so for a lot of those protective fears, it makes sense to at least consider the avoidance indication of fear. But the problem is we then put that on all kinds of important things. For instance, let's say that you're younger than you are, maybe the age you are, and you're looking for somebody to love. And you're standing in a room, maybe it's a dance, maybe it's a party, and you look across and there's somebody across that looks very interesting to you and you say, wow, that person could be the person for me. Your stomach goes into knots. It goes into a fear place because you're, you get anxious about what's important. Notice the importance. So that person over there looks like someone who could be important in your life. And you became so anxious that you know you're tongue-tied and you can't go over and talk to them. As opposed to somebody you just see that looks like an interesting person, but really probably won't be anybody that you know for more than that party or that dance. They're probably easy to approach. The question is, if one is hard to approach because it triggers those existential fears and the other is easy to approach, do you avoid the one that's hard? Or do you say, you know, it's worth it to be challenged, to allow my fears to move me in that direction. It's worth it because of the potential payoff. It's worth it for where I want to get to. So we can change this equation. Instead of using fear as an avoidance indicator, a thriving approach is to use it as an importance indicator. Fear is telling you, pay attention. In all situations, that's what fear is telling you. Pay attention. Heightened fear is never just about you've got to avoid everything. But heightened fear is pointing us to something that is important. And at least at that moment, it's important. Even in that avoidance places where it might be something that really is a protective fear. It still is only in that moment, right? When I'm hanging on the rock wall, my fear is only at that moment. When I'm going in for an important test, my fear is only for that moment. Once it's over, my fear is going to abate. And so we recognize that fear is an importance indicator and fear is also a temporary condition. And that the way through fear is not to avoid the things that trigger us. So how do we break this law, this immutable law of living that we all have fears? Well, first, we believe somehow that fear is about being wrong or weak or there's a flaw within us instead of recognizing that fear is in everyone. Some of us fake it better than others, but we all have those fears. 
Remember the studies that show that the bullies who are acting all brave are the fearfulest of all. They have the greatest fear, and that's why they are playing the bully part. By the way, we'll talk about bravery in just a minute. Also, we break the law when we believe that only we, only I have those fears. We come to this place of not just saying, well, you know, something's wrong with people who have that fear, but to say, I'm the one, I'm the only one who has this fear. Other people don't have this fear. They go through life without those fears. When I was a scout leader a number of years back, I was having a conversation with a bunch of the Cub Scouts. We were doing crafts, as we normally do. And I walked up to a table and they were talking about, I believe it was from some firemen who had rescued some people. And I said, well, what do you think about that? They said, wow, they were brave. And I said, yeah, they're pretty courageous, weren't they? They said, yeah, they had a lot of courage. And I said, yeah, what does that mean to have courage? And they said, oh, that you don't have any fears. I said, oh, see, I don't think that. I believe that having courage is doing things even though you have fear, in spite of the fear. Because if you don't have fear, then taking action is just taking action. For instance, we were talking about uh, Alex Hunnell, the rock climber. If he has no fear, is there any courage in what he's doing or is he just climbing? Is he just doing calculated leaps from one place to the other because he doesn't have a place of fear? But you and I... When we take action, in spite of those fears, that might be courage. So when we only believe that we have those fears, we get ourselves away from the place that everybody has fears. And the question is how much courage we all carry. The other place where we break this law is when we allow fear to keep us from doing something important, from taking action. When we allow fear to keep us from approaching that important person. When we allow fear to keep us from taking that important job, when we allow fear to keep us from saying something important in an important time, we break this law of living when we allow the fear to hold us back from what's important to us. So how do we get back into abeyance of this law? How do we obey this law better? Let me suggest four different ways of doing it. First, use fear. See fear as the tool that it is. Instead of being the avoidance indicator, always think of your fear as an importance indicator. Always think of how it's pulling you towards something important or at least pointing to something that's important and allow it to bring you to a new level of alertness. When I was paddling on that river, I have never been so alert of what was going on around me. Because my fear was telling me I needed to be careful. My fear wasn't necessarily I need to stay off the water, though many might have chosen that and my wife might have preferred that. For me, it was deciding to stay alert, to recognize that there's an extra level of caution I needed to make that day. So use fear as an importance indicator and allow it to have you focused on the alertness. Have you focused on the event? Have you focused on whatever's going on? so that you keep yourself safe, but that you move towards the important things in life. The second way we obey it is by being courageous, acting in spite of the fear. It's courage when you look over and see that person you want to make an introduction to. It's courage when you say, I want that job, can I apply for it? It's courage when you say to a spouse, I'm going to work on this relationship. It's courage when you say, That was a wrong in society that I stand up for. It's courage when you say, I've got to take action. 
It's courage when you move, even though there's fear. Be courageous and you get back into abeyance with this law. It's okay to be fearful. It's not so great when the fear keeps you from acting. So allow the fear and decide to act when it makes sense. And then you act with courage. And then there's some ways that we take care of that so we can do that. One is to soothe your body. Recognize that your fear is not just in this little mind place, but it's a bodily response. And so when you soothe your body, you're able to deal with it better, to be in a place of self-care. When you're exercising, you're wearing off the adrenaline that comes from our daily fears. When you're eating well, you're making sure you're not triggering more adrenaline into your system by what you're putting into your body. When you are making sure that you're attending to your body's needs, you're capable of taking on more fearful things, more courageous actions. And remember that breathing. Belly breathing is one of the ways that we talk to that nonverbal part of our brain. I've talked about this before, but if you're joining me for the first time, a belly breath is when you're breathing so that your diaphragm is bringing in the air. If you were to lie down on a flat surface and put a hand over your belly button and over your breastbone and act in a way that that breathes in so that only your belly moves, that's a belly breath. You do it slowly. There's a technique called box breathing where you breathe in, count of three, you hold your breath, count of three, you breathe out, count of three, hold the exhale for a count of two or three, and breathe in. So (sighs) that's a belly breath on the box. And you continue that process and you'll notice your body calms down. I know that because I've used this for years as a chaplain, as a therapist, as a coach, as a way of externally saying to that deep part of your mind, of your brain, everything's okay. It's okay. It's just a fear response. I'm going to keep acting, but everything's okay. I'll keep you safe. When we do that, we begin to allow our mind to come back on board instead of being hijacked by that most primitive part of our brain that gets us into that avoidance place. And the final thing is to raise your tolerance to fear. One of the bad habits we get into is allowing fear to stop us. And when we allow fear to stop us, we strengthen that response. We strengthen that part of the brain that says, ah, see, I knew it wasn't safe. You stayed away from it. I helped you avoid that. I'll do it better the next time. And so we begin to build in our our intolerance for fear. The next time our trigger is a little lower and the next time it's a little lower. But if we push through, if we do what we need to do and face our fear and continue pushing, then we build our tolerance. We don't feed our fear response. We feel our courage response. And when we feed our courage response, the next time it's easier to be courageous. So raise your tolerance to fear by doing what you need to do, by allowing fear to have pointed towards the importance. I hope this has been helpful. I hope you've been able to put some pieces together on how you deal with your fear and how you might even help your family deal with fear and how you might help your friends deal with fear. And one way of doing that is to share this message. Help me do that. Just below this recording, there are a number of ways to share it on social media if you're on my webpage at thrivology.com. If you're not, if you're not on my website, if you're listening from a mobile device with the podcast app, you can simply go to a browser on that device and type in thrivology.com 
slash love. Thrivology is T-H-R-I-V-E-O-L-O-G-Y.com slash love. That will create an automatic tweet that you can send out and let people know how to find this. Also, if you have a chance, leave a review in iTunes or leave a review on Stitcher and let others know that you found something good, that's something that's helpful for you. Help me spread the word. Let's help others learn the importance of fear, not as something to avoid, but something that's pointing towards importance so that we all can live a more courageous and thriving life. listening to the Thrivology Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at Thrivology.com or at ThrivologyMagazine.com. Remember that Thrivology is spelled T-H-R-I-V-E-O-L-O-G-Y. It's your life. Time to live it. Uh-huh.